today. Morning, Mac family. Uh, my name is Matthew Rojek, and along with my be- uh, my wife Betty, we've been down at Mac for about nine years. Uh, been a joy to be part of this community. Uh, looking forward to sharing God's word with you. Wanted to say thanks to Pastor Leon for giving me opportunity to do so. For those of you who might be new, uh, just joining us, we want to say welcome. And as Edith said, there's a, a card that you can fill out. Uh, and I'm sure as well you can call the church if you're unable to do that. Uh, if you have any needs, we would be uh, blessed to be able to be part of that and uh, pray with you and supply whatever needs we can. Uh, I met with Pastor Leon last week, and as we were talking about my sermon, I had mentioned to him recently I'd finished a book. And in the book, they quote Charles Spurgeon, a preacher from mid-1800s, and he said that any sermon that does not contain Christ is not a sermon. And I've been pondering on that for a while, and that's how I got to today's sermon. Uh, So if you guys would uh, pray with me, and then we'll start. Lord Jesus, we come before you, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We want to bring glory and honor to your name, and we want to do so, Father God, not just in word, but in deed. Lord, continue to mold and change our hearts. May the word of God bring forth change, enlightenment, understanding in the congregation and to all who are listening, including myself, Lord God, and we just thank you for it in Jesus' name. So we're going to be discussing Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 that says, Wherefore, seeing we are encompassed by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12 begins with this admonition to do two things, cast off encumbrances, sin, hindrances, anything that slows or modifies our pursuit of the finish line, the end goal and the prize that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, Paul says, everybody runs, but run so that you have determined to win the prize. And the second thing that he encourages us to do is run with perseverance, run with patience, this race of eternity to be lived in Jesus Christ himself. So casting aside hindrances and the weights that so easily beset us brought me back to about nine years ago. I'd always wanted to go to Alaska. And so my son said, hey, Dad, I'd like to take you, and we'll go backpacking for 10 days in Denali National Park. So for the next four months, every night that I came home, I put on a backpack that I had put weights in, 50 pounds, and I would walk for two solid hours for four months in preparation to this trip. James and I get to the park, bus takes us out to the very end of the road, and we had uh, sat down with the guides, and uh, the park guides, and we had set up our, our plan for 10 days worth of hiking. We didn't have a tent, we slept in hammocks, we didn't have a stove, we used a flint to start the fires to boil water, um, 
And there was one other thing we didn't have. I can't, I can't think of it right now. And anyways, so after two days of camping, I needed to set aside a weight. And that weight literally was the next 27 meals that James's wife had prepared for us in the form of dehydrated meals. As much preparation as I had done, I got rid of 27 meals. And for the next eight days, I had a bowl of oatmeal in the morning, a Cliff Bar for lunch, and a handful of granola for dinner. Uh, needless to say, lost some weight, but I want to give you guys the idea that I needed to set those weights aside because I had a vision of finishing this walk. And in order to do so, I had to make some drastic changes, casting aside those sins, those weights that deter us from our end goal of eternity with Christ and becoming more and more like him. The admonition of ridding yourself of these hindrances that stifle our sanctification uh, process comes with a caveat to help motivate us. The author of Hebrews says we're encompassed by this great cloud of witnesses. And if you look back in chapter 11, these witnesses are men and women who have lived the life that you and I are acting out in faith, looking for the end goal, But they did so specifically in faith because although they understood that a Messiah, a Savior, was coming per the scriptures of the Old Testament and God's forewarning of that, they did not have the vision of Christ. They did not have the Jesus that you and I know in the Old Testament. They did so faithfully without the aid of our author the captain, the perfecter Jesus, they were running blind, as it were, with only a hint or foreshadow of Messiah, doing so by faith alone. Consider the privilege that we have looking unto Jesus. We have the answer that the Old Testament peoples longed for, to know, to follow. We had the perfect example of how to walk, how to live, how to serve, and how to love. We're going to discuss uh, three points today. We're going to discuss the idea of looking. Uh, We're going to discuss the names that different versions of the Scripture give Jesus. Author, captain, founder, prince, leader, originator. And then we're going to finish up with the second part of that Scripture where it talks about him being the finisher, the perfecter, the completer. So let's start with looking. Ellicott says that the word for looking is the same word used in Hebrews 11.26, referencing Moses' distinctive choice to embrace reproach because his, Moses' attention was fixed on the future reward. And most of you, I presume, know, but Moses was born a Hebrew, and because there was an edict to uh, kill all the babies, the male babies that were born under three years old, Moses' mother built a little boat, put Moses in it, put him in a river. Pharaoh's daughter found him and raised Moses as her own son 
in the, in the camp of Pharaoh. So think about he had phenomenal education, phenomenal wealth. He had every conceivable advantage with the idea of potentially becoming uh, Pharaoh himself. But at some point in time, Moses saw that his Hebrew brothers and sisters were being persecuted. And he, looking towards the prize of eternity, knowing that Yahweh had created him for that end goal, had a choice. Do I want to live in Pharaoh's household and enjoy all the wealth that God has given me? Or do I want to choose to suffer reproach for my brothers and sisters? And we know that he chose reproach. We have a similar idea in Romans 8.18 that says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. You and I look forward to this goal, and even though we suffer currently, being persecuted sometimes as believers for our faith, we recognize the end goal is what our desire is that the Father has for us, and it makes suffering a bit more palatable. Now, I, I hope this analogy works for you guys. Um, a number of years ago, I was able to go with Betty and our grandkids, and we did virtual reality. Um, and so what they did was they put a set of goggles on me, and I went from one reality to a completely different reality where I was like a Sumerai fort food slicer. And my entire vision was directed at one goal, and that's to cut up these flying cantaloupes and bananas without hitting the bombs. I only had that reality before me. I wasn't thinking about anything else but that reality. And I actually you know, got in the position, and, and I was using the controllers as swords. And it was amazing to me how much I was engaged and in, entrenched in this new reality. Spurgeon says that the Greek word for looking is a much fuller word that we can find in the English language. It has a preposition in it that turns the look away from everything else. Again, when I brought up the virtual reality, I wasn't thinking or looking at anything else but that goal in front of me. I want to give you another illustration. In 1954, there was a memorable event that happened at um, a sporting event called the Empire Games in Vancouver where the eyes of the world were fixed on two milers, John Landry and Roger Bannister, with the idea that this is what was going to be called the Miracle Mile, the two greatest milers, and, and it was understood that one of them, if not both, would break the four-minute mile. Again, this is 1954. It had never been done before. So as the race started, uh, it met the expectations of the crowd, and John Landry took off, and he was, he was in the lead. And then he made a fatal mistake. He looked slightly over his shoulder to see where Bannister was, and Bannister passed him and ended up winning the race by five yards and he broke the four-minute mile. And a guy named Kent Hughes, as I was looking this up, said that Landry's fatal lapse of concentration 
was a picture of what the writer of Hebrews was saying in this verse. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, blocking out all other distractions, running to win the race of your life. There's another in the New Testament. It talks about putting your hand to the plow and that you're not even worthy if you decide to kind of look back and look at your old life. That's another idea that we don't want to participate in. We want to look down the straight and narrow, looking unto Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith, setting aside those hindrances, those visual hindrances of sin, of idolatry that desire your and my attention. This looking, gazing, fixing our eyes, our attention on Jesus is not with physical eyes. And it's not just as a historical figure. And it's not solely an exercise of self-will. But similar to the cloud of witnesses, it is a faith-directed vision empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is not just we read about Jesus, but this is internalized by the Holy Spirit. So we have full comprehension of who He is and what He's provided for you and I as the author and completer. I want to read you one other thing. I've mentioned this before, A.W. Tozer, in a book about called The Knowledge of the Holy. A right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical living as well. It is to worship what the foundation is to the temple, wherein any inadequacies or out of plumb, the whole structure will sooner or later collapse. I believe, this is Tozer, I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced to imperfect and ignoble thoughts of God. It is my opinion that the Christian conception of God in current in these middle years of the 20th century is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God and actually to constitute for professed believers something amounting to moral calamity. Now I say that to say this. You and I are looking unto Jesus and we need to do so as the scriptures dictate, not as some of the terrible preachers that are out there that point us down wrong roads, prosperity roads, and a host of others. It's important that you and I understand God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit as scripture denotes, not as and I hate to use this word, like perverse minds would have altered the scriptures to trick you and I into believing something that's not true. Now, there's people out there right now listening maybe that don't know this Jesus that we're talking about. And I just want to encourage you that the Jesus that we preach is one who's called the friend of sinners. And he's the friend of sinners because he chose to die and pay a debt that you and I owe, and he did so willingly. I just want to say, man, he loves you regardless, and I hope you're encouraged by this word. 
If there's anything that I can do to help you, again, you can call the church. I'd be more than happy to, to talk to you. I want to make an appeal to those uh, MAC members, anybody who's listening. I want to make appeal to you to spend your first waking moments with Jesus alone, fixing your eyes on him before distractions come and steal the day's focus. Fix your attention on him. Come to know him as the Bible teaches for yourself and the relationship that only comes from intimate time spent. You cannot let Leon or the elders, John Piper, or anyone else be your main source of spiritual food. You have to do it on your own. As you intercede and ask the Holy Spirit to awaken your mind and your soul and your spirit to what the Scriptures have to say, you're going to feast on the true Word of God. And I want to encourage you, don't let your devotional time be spent in your car on the way to work or fitted in among the chores of the day. The King of the universe, the King of creation, of salvation, He longs for one-on-one time with you. What's my point? My point is that He is a jealous God and that He is not interested in being one of, me- one of your many interests. He's not interested in being one among many idols or one among many gods as a shared lover. And I want to just give you a a personal example. Uh, Many times in the morning, uh, you guys probably know Martha, my daughter, and grandsons live with us, and the house is pretty full and hectic and chaotic. So oftentimes, Betty and I will get up early, and after we've done our devotions, we'll come down in the... um, Uh, living room and we'll have a cup of coffee before the day starts. We don't talk about anything. We don't talk about politics. We don't talk about church. We don't talk about my business. We don't talk about the world's problems. Betty and I just have time building our marriage, talking about us, our hopes, our dreams. And again, it's, it's before the distractions of the grandsons or my daughter or work is calling on me. So I want to ask you a question to to think through. What do you set in front of looking unto Jesus in your morning waking hours? Is the first thing you do is check your email or check your phone? Uh, Even hanging with your spouse. Again, I, I would even encourage you, before you hang with your spouse, have your devotional time. Before you think about politics, before you think about news or work, spend that time looking unto Jesus, coming to a better understanding of who he is and his desires for your life as a believer. So let's move on uh, to talking about the author, the pioneer, the founder, the champion, and the source Jesus Christ himself. 1 John 1, 4 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, man, that, 
that's a whole bunch of mouthfuls all put together in one. He was in the beginning. The Word was in the beginning. He is the Word. Jesus, as denoted earlier in the Hebrews passage, is the author of our salvation, of our sanctification. And it, it says here that He is the Word, and He was with God in the beginning. What what are words? Authors use words to do a number of things. To tell stories, engage others in new ideas, or bring about new frames of reference. Jesus is the sentence that makes the story of life. He's the paragraph where we gain understanding of the Father's character through these declarations, challenges, and encouragements that make up the whole of Scripture. Not only does Jesus tell the big picture story of creation, life, relationship, but he specifically tells and wants you to listen to the story that he has written of and for you. He's not only the author, he is the actual story foretold prophetically throughout the Old Testament, but also as an audio-visual book that was spoken to the world as he walked the streets of Jerusalem. Now, in the beginning of Hebrews, it talks about long ago, God spoke in many different ways to the forefathers through the prophets. In the King James Version, it then says, but God has spoken to us by his Son. Again, his Son is the Word. He's the virtual language of the Gospels. About 40 years ago, I I heard a sermon on Hebrews 1, and if you look at the King James Version, the word his is italicized. And what that means is, it was that word his is not in the actual original language, but was put in there to help you and I understand the context of the sentence. The problem is that the preacher that I heard says, in a sense, it's been a detriment. Because what God is actually saying here is, God has spoken to us by Son. Son is the new language of the gospel, of the New Testament, of the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. So he's, he's a language unto himself that the Holy Spirit takes and gives you and I wisdom and understanding as we're reading through the scriptures, as we're reading Hebrews and Romans and Ephesians and putting all these puzzle pieces together. He's the language that God speaks to you and I about our salvation and our sanctification. He's the Word. His life is the story. Scriptures say He was founder. He's the founder. He was at the beginning. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says He's the uh, foundation. Ephesians 2.20 says He's the chief cornerstone. He's your and my champion. He fights for us. Hebrews 7.25 says he ever lives to intercede. Think about that. Right now, he's interceding for you and I before the Father saying, hey, give him understanding, help him understand what's being spoken. 
Hebrews 2.10 says he's the captain of our salvation. So what's my point? As the Word, the author, he is the actual communication of who, what, when, where, why, and how of God himself. Do you want to know God? If so, read the author. Read the scriptures. So we'll move on to my last point. The finisher, the perfecter, the completer, the instructor. He perfects us, as in John 14, 26, he delegates the tool of the Holy Spirit. He does so for a number of reasons. One, to initially draw all men. Two, to empower with understanding. Again, the Holy Spirit listens to what the Father is saying, and He comes and because He lives in you, He makes those things known to your mind, to your spirit, to give you wisdom and understanding, to introduce you to the true Christ, not the false Christ that's quite often preached in today's churches. He gives, uh, he empowers us both physically and spiritually in our ability to conquer sin. As the completer, he instructs us as we walk alongside. Hebrews 13.5 says he never leaves us or forsakes us. He's the completer of this salvation that began in your heart when you come to understand who you were and who you were in relationship to the God of the universe. He completes the work in the beginning, uh, in the Hebrews 2, where it says, and then he sat down. No other high priest before him could sit down because tomorrow there was going to be a new sin or the next day there was going to be a new sin. And their sacrifices for it were imperfect. Jesus in Hebrews 10, 11 through 13 says, he was able to sit down at the right hand of the Father. And lastly, point four, uh, Philippians says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Once again, it says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will perfect, perform, accomplish, do that sanctification process in you until you perfected when you go to meet Christ. So what's my point? My point is that we've not been left alone to figure out this Christianity thing. We've not been left alone to be, walk through the sanctification process on our own, trying to figure it out, the hows and the how-tos and the where's and the why's. But it's God himself in the form of the Holy Spirit who empowers you and I to walk this road of sanctification, looking unto Jesus, the author and completer of our faith, and the end goal that Paul talks about, we're going to run this race, but we do so with one goal in mind, to finish well. Not like John Landry, looking to the side, 
looking for Bannister. Bannister blows by him. But you and I are to fix our eyes on Christ. And I'm going to end with this. Richard Phillips says that this leads us to what I often call the all-purpose Christian advice from Hebrews 12, 2, which gives the encouragement of the Christian life. I say this because there is no circumstance, no difficulty, no temptation for which this is not a reliable guide. He's saying in all of life's circumstances, this holds true, that we can look unto Christ. This is the secret for the Christian life, the encouragement we need for our faith, to place our eyes not on the world with its enticements and its threats, not even on ourselves, looking at our petty successes and our many failures, but on Him who is the source and fountain of all of our spiritual vigor. So saints, may just I encourage you in closing, my hope for you today is simple. Would you look unto Jesus always and for all things? And again, I repeat what we said earlier. You know, for those of you who might not understand exactly what we're talking about, or you know a different Jesus, a different version of Jesus than what you might be hearing today or have heard you know, previously, uh, I want to encourage you. Get a Bible, look for the, Old, uh, for the New Testament, and begin reading. Ask God to reveal himself to you. The Bible says that if you seek God with your whole heart, you will find him. He will reveal himself to you. And if you don't have a Bible, call the church. We'll be more than happy to supply you with one. If you've got questions about that, call the church and someone will respond. An elder, myself, Ginny will make sure that someone gets a hold of you to be able to discuss this life of faith that we're talking about, this looking unto Jesus, the very Word of God, the author and the finisher of our faith. If we could just pray. Jesus, thank you for the sacrifice you made, even though the Word says you despised the shame that you still endured the cross. Your Word says that you, you, your Father made the captain of our salvation perfect through sufferings. Lord, we know that suffering is part of the Christian life, and we don't want to avoid it, but we need your help. We are frail, weak sheep. Holy Spirit, come empower us with singular vision to walk this narrow road of faith, not looking left or right, but looking unto Jesus that we might secure the end goal, and that is of our salvation. In Jesus' name.